0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Gospel Doctrine Podcast. We are tonight recording live in front of a studio audience, which is the studio tonight is the Relief Society room in the Sandy Granite Stake Center. But we're grateful to be here with all of you. And if I had a laughter sign and applause, I would hold it up right now, everybody. So you can see I'm not making it up. There's a studio audience. And they're all here. So we're going to tonight, the lesson we're going to cover is lesson two in your Gospel Doctrine manual which is thou wast chosen before thou wast born. We're covering Abraham chapter three and we're covering Moses uh, chapter four, verses one through four. All right, let's go over some of the, the main topics that are covered in this lesson. Number one, we learn about who Satan is. And that's what we read in Moses chapter four, verses one through four. We learn that Satan was cast out of God's presence and why. So I'm gonna read those verses from Moses four, one through four. And I, the Lord God, spake unto Moses, saying, That Satan whom thou hast commanded, in the name of mine only begotten. And if you were uh, listening last week, then you will remember, Moses commanded Satan to leave by the power of the only begotten. God says, Is the same which was from the beginning. He came before me, saying, Behold, here am I, send me, I will be thy son, and I will redeem all mankind, that one soul shall not be lost. And surely I will do it, wherefore give me thine honor. That's who Satan is. He wanted to take the honor of God, and he wanted to make sure that none of us could be lost. The plan of Satan—now, we've all learned this from primary time, but what, the question that continually puzzles me is, how did Satan entice one-third of the hosts of heaven to follow him? So here we are in mortality, and we understand very little about the eternal nature of things. We can't see God. We have only limited access to the Holy Ghost— We have to constantly live worthy of it and constantly draw closer to God so that he can enlighten our mind. And yet, when we were in the pre-existence, we we could see God, we could talk to him, and he could plead with us, this is my plan, and we knew exactly the glory that we had waiting for us if we followed it, and still one-third of the hosts of heaven. So I'm going to send this question out to my studio audience, and maybe somebody will be brave enough to step up to the mic. Um, What was it that Satan did, do you think, that might have enticed one-third of the hosts of heaven to follow him? And as I'm talking, if you want to step up, then I'll call on you. And then the another question that you can be thinking about is, what evidence or what examples can we see of that same conflict continuing? And one example that stood out in my mind lately in my scripture study is the example of Nephi and Laman. And I see that same example repeated constantly in in the news and in political ways, and I'll tell you what I mean by that. So if we turn to Second Nephi chapter five, and this is the chapter in which Nephi finally becomes aware that he's in so much danger that if he doesn't immediately leave, that he will be killed. Chapter five, verses one through six. Behold, it came to pass that I Nephi did cry much unto the Lord because of the anger of my brethren, but behold, their anger did increase against me insomuch that they did seek to take away my life. So Finally, before they tied him on the ship and they told him they were going to throw him over, but they didn't do it. They've been threatening his life for years. But at this point, they were seeking to murder him. They did murmur against me, saying, Our younger brother thinks to rule over us, and we have had much trial because of him. Wherefore, now let us slay him, that we may not be afflicted more because of his words. For behold, we will not have him to be our ruler, for it belongs unto us, who are elder brethren, to rule over this people. And if we skip down... To verse 6, then you can see that he took those who would come with him, anybody who was faithful to the gospel and to, and knew that Nephi was a prophet, and he, and he ran off into the wilderness. The reason I read these verses is, is later on, what is the complaint that the Lamanites have against the Nephites? Uh, it's the The complaint is always the same, that you took away the leadership of the people. But what did Nephi actually do? He didn't take away leadership of anyone. All he wanted to... Do was to not be ruled over and to not be killed. They were trying to kill him. And so whenever I read that now in the scriptures, because I've thought about this in my mind, I hear the words, you didn't let us kill you. Lamanites, why are you so mad at us? Because you didn't let us kill you. And whenever you see a version of that, now, now that you're thinking about it, you will see this actually uh, come, come to pass. You'll, you'll see evidences of it all over. You'll see different groups and different governments treat their people this way. And it's not killing all the time. But why are you so mad? And the answer always is, you didn't let me take your freedom away and tell you what to do. You didn't let me govern your life. This is exactly what Satan wanted to do. It was a little disguised. So how could Satan... Well, let's, let's first, before we ask that question... The question I was going to ask was, how, did, how could Satan guarantee what God was able to guarantee? Before we ask that, let's talk about conference, a general conference address given by Dallin H. Oaks in October 2000. And you might remember this, what you can become, the challenge to become was the exact title, and the parable he gave was of a young child, and the father came, comes to his son and says, son, I want to give you, the father's wealthy, son, I want to give you everything that I've acquired over a lifetime of hard work. But the father knows that if he were to just hand it over without any work on the part of the son, then that fortune and all the good that comes of it, all the jobs it creates, all the products that it creates would immediately be wasted and be squandered because the son is too young and too unwise to understand how such things are, are managed and cared for. So he tells him, you have to go through what I went through. I need you to go to college. I need you to rise up through the company and after you've done all those things, I'm paraphrasing his his parable, but after you've done all those things, then everything I have is yours. But until that point, I can't hand this over to you. I would be foolish to do so. I'd be better off giving it to charity or selling it to the highest bidder because somebody who could afford it is somebody who's paid the price that I have. So with that parable in mind, let's talk about what it was that Satan was capable of promising us. Now, Satan didn't have a body, had not been through the moral refiner's fire that God the Father had, so obviously was completely unable to promise that we would end up where God was. What was his promise? Anybody have an answer to that? Satan had some sort of promise with which he was able to entice one-third of the hosts of heaven to follow him. What was that promise? How could he guarantee anything to anyone? Obviously, we would have looked at him, we would have seen, there's no body here,
1: So uh, one of the dynamics I see here is, is a willingness to abdicate responsibility. Freedom always requires more effort, it requires mental exertion, physical exertion, and uh, you asked for a modern-day example of this. Um, in our government, we have three branches that are all given separate but equal powers, but we see a regular willingness of one branch to abdicate their specific power to another branch because it makes it easier for them.
0: And I'm guessing you're talking about Congress giving over their power to
1: the courts. That's exactly right. So there are many instances of that and it makes their job easier. They, they get the same pay no matter what they do. They are, uh, they don't relish the freedom because they don't relish the results that they are called upon to achieve. And if you don't relish the results you're called upon to achieve, then, uh, then what benefit is that freedom to you? And so you give it away. You sell it to something else.
0: Okay. Thank you. Appreciate that. I'll have a comment for that in a second, but we have another comment here.
2: Yeah, uh, Hugh Nibley um, talked in the 50s of uh, what he called the, the ancient law of liberty, which was basically the choice between two trees, a path to the left and a path to the right, you are freely able to choose either, but there's consequences to both. That Governments, over time, have always what he called the um, path of constrained virtue, where they say you can't go to the left, because if God wants us to go to the right, I'm the king, I'm forcing everybody to the right, so you don't even have the choice to go left or right, I'm just forcing everybody to the right, which isn't true liberty. And So basically, you know, America being based on the idea of liberty, a small government, therefore a big individual, which means lots of freedom, lots of things can go wrong, therefore we need a lot of morality, and, and individual um, responsibility and, and, and things taught to us to be moral. But the big point is, by being constrained to be virtuous, it's actually satanic. It's the wrong—it's definitionally satanic. And a lot of times when this talk comes up, people will say, Well, both options were good. Both options were good, but one was better. And I think, No! <laughs> Both options weren't good. One was definitionally satanic; it was Satan's plan, and absolutely wrong. And the other one is correct because it gives people true virtue.
0: Yeah. Okay. Thank true you. Liberty. Okay. Both excellent comments. Governments <clears throat> that keep that help people be free. Is that's exactly what God wanted for us was for us to be free. So they're fulfilling the will of God, and it's difficult. And the the hard part of having. Freedom is people are going to make choices that make other people miserable, what we might call the quote-unquote wrong choices. And those are the consequences. Those people are locked up in jail, or perhaps they have victims who can never be fully compensated and never be put right. And that is the cost of freedom, the unfortunate one. And the cost of God's plan was we had to work for it. Well, we had a couple other comments. Before I talk more, let's continue.
3: Mine's kind of a question. I think it's for, it's first a statement. So I think one of the most beautiful gifts that we've been given is the gift of choice. And um, although, like you just mentioned, sometimes other people's choices might make my life a little worse off, overall, the value of me being able to make choices is something I value very highly. And I also think it's a very godlike quality. So something I'm just confused about is how Satan even thought that, he could offer a plan where there was no choice, because without choice, I don't think we can become godlike.
0: Thank you. Why did he? Yeah, why did he think it was going to work? Uh, my my answer to that is, I don't think he thought it was going to work. I don't think he either. He didn't think it through, or he did think it through and he realized that he would be important in whatever new order that he was setting up, and he necessarily took away our ability to choose. And his enticement was, I'll also take away all of your consequences of your bad choices. If you think about it, there is no plan that could succeed under those conditions. The only thing it could do was to give us everything that God could already give us, which was as good a life as we could get without being subject to mortality.
1: It seems that
3: people will generally choose certainty over uncertainty because they're uncomfortable with uncertainty. And that's the appeal of authoritarian governments is the promise that I can tell you exactly what will be your outcome and that you can trust that I know what I'm saying and that then you therefore don't have to face uncertainty.
0: Thank you. Yes, and the promise of an authoritarian government is never, I'm going to take away your freedoms. It's always, I'm going to give you free stuff. The promise is not to take away the choice. It's to take away... The consequences of your choices, but then of necessity, taking away consequences means taking away choice. So that was Satan's promise: was I'll take away all of your consequences for your bad choices. And a lot of people didn't do the math on that and realize that they were going to have no choices when all was said and done. You can read in the Book of Alma where he says that, and if this had happened, then God would have ceased to be God. And it's very easy to see that that's the case because. We would have been in a state where it didn't matter if, if God was God or not, there was no salvation for us. There was no pro, uh, eternal progression for us in such a plan. So that was that was who Lucifer was. Uh, he chose to be important rather than to have the smallest chance of salvation. He would rather be the leader of hell than second or third banana in heaven. And that <clears throat> what a strange desire that was. Who were we in the preexistence? This is one of the few chapters that explicitly talks about what the pre-existence means. And Abraham says, I was with God and he showed me the intelligences that were organized before the world was. And then a little bit later, God says, thou art one of them, Abraham. Thou was chosen before thou was born. That's the title of our lesson. So let's talk a little bit about the pre-existence. This chapter introduces the idea of what we call in the church for ordination. And what is called in the Christian world at large, predestination. And they're distinguished by the fact that in predestination, as is believed in some religions, you cannot escape what you're predestined to do. We believe, and rightly so, that, well, let me put it this way. If you believe that you have no choice in this life, then you're right back where Satan would have put you. And so it's difficult for me to understand why you would choose to believe in God and then believe that he took all of your agency away. That is a bit like believing in Satan and calling him God. Anyway, the, the doctrine of predestination, there, there aren't a lot of new adherents to it, but back in the 1600s, it was very popular. Foreordination is what we call it in the gospel, and it, there are some verses in the Book of Mormon that talk about people who are High priests called and set apart to this calling before the foundations of the world. Joseph S. Smith, in, in the 138th section of the Doctrine and Covenants, talks about the great men and women who were called before the foundation of the world and were waiting for the Savior to come and begin his intramortal ministry. And Eve was among them, as were many others. So, here's a question, a thought experiment what was your foreordination? What were you foreordained to do? Now, somebody who's served as a you know, high officer in the church might have an easy answer to this question. I don't know that we have anybody in this room that fits that description, but I believe this with all my heart. We were all foreordained to do something. So I will answer this question for myself. I believe that I was foreordained to have certain gifts and certain weaknesses. And every time one of these weaknesses comes up for me, I can comfort myself a little bit with the idea that this was part of the plan that I made with God. Before I came to earth, he said to me, these are the, and I believe God, uh, I touched on this a little bit last week. I believe that God had all the time he needed with all of us, way more time than an earthly father has with his children. He had huge stretches of eternity, as much time as we wanted, as much as we needed. And he delegated part of our upbringing, doubtless to certain of our brothers and sisters who needed that experience and to us for others so that we could all help each other. So I believe that God and I sat down in Jesus Christ and we sat down together and they said to me, here are the things that you need to work on. And so we can send you into mortality and we can give you certain weaknesses that will test your faith, that will break you down, that will drive you to your knees if you want us to. And just like when we read that the host of heaven shouted for joy, I believe I probably saw the rewards in that and I shouted for joy and I said, thank you, I would love that. I'm so joyous to receive that calling, and I, there was probably some period of qualification involved where I had to learn what I needed to know before I came to Earth. So let's talk a little bit about that. This is an interesting question. What do you think our instruction consisted of? And maybe I can have a, a volunteer, you will if, if anybody's following along, and maybe at home you're following along too, in your uh, gospel. Library app. If you're following along in that app, then you will see a link to DNC 138. I believe it's verses 53 through 57. Anybody want to read? No, it's verse 56. We read that verse?
3: verse 56. Even before they were born, they with many others received their first lessons in the world of spirits were prepared to come forth in the due time of the Lord to labor in his vineyard for the salvation
2: of the souls of men.
0: Thank you. So they with many others, and I believe that includes you and me. There's no reason that it wouldn't. They were indeed very special men and women, but to God, everyone's special. Everyone, everyone deserves his full attention and His full, re, all of his resources bent towards our salvation. And the fact that we're here today makes it seem sort of likely that we were on board with what God had in mind and he would have given us lessons. He would have tried to qualify us as best he could. So we are contemplating a decision that will take us into a place where we can't remember making that decision. What kind of lessons could we have learned that would help? Anybody have any ideas? Elder Maxwell likened this idea to a patient, he gave a talk on patients actually, but no, pun not intended, there was a, there's a patient who is undergoing surgery and he's, and he's been anesthetized, sitting on the operating table, and he says, is the doctor beholden to wake that patient up and continually ask permission for the operation that he's already been authorized to perform? Of course not. The anesthetic has taken hold, and now it's his job to save the life of the patient. And in much the same way, we've been given the anesthesia of the veil, and here we are, and together we worked out with God what our treatment would be for whatever spiritual growth we saw a need for. And here we are in the middle of our operation. So what uh, what kind of lessons do you think? And the problem is this. When you're a patient under general anesthet- anesthesia, you're not expected to assist the physician in your own operation. So that's the difference in the analogy there. So, what kind of lesson could you get in the world of spirits that would help you live a better life after you go through the veil? Well,
1: you know, this may not be addressing your exact question because there's two ways to approach it um, as a society and as individuals, but uh, in the economy of heaven, there are many specializations, and I think... uh, I like that. Early on in our development, maybe we took to something, and if we were... If we showed an adeptness or an interest, we would have received more specialized training to come down and participate in the economy of heaven here on earth. So we can see that same analogy Paul is talking about when he says that we are the body of Christ. And in the body, there are all sorts of specialized functions. And we see certain people gravitate toward those and to develop those skills, like you with your interest in knowledge and teaching, for example which then uh, becomes a blessing to the, to the body. Of the I world.
0: didn't put him up to this, by the way. <laughs>
1: <laughs> right. Uh, you know, at a, at a specialized level or an individual level, um, you know, the answers are as diverse as, as people themselves. I remember, without going into details, hearing certain lessons as a child and feeling a very unusual resonance with, uh, with certain principles that I felt that I would participate in. And it wasn't the case that every single lesson, although I found them equally true, had the same impact on me. And so that uh, that left indelible marks that drove decisions, things that I studied, things that I chose to do and not do, that helped uh, hone me for that particular task. I think that's a very real thing.
0: Thank you. And I, what you just said brought to mind the idea that I've had that People receive blessings throughout the, their whole life, blessings for the sick and blessings of counsel. And you can all think of blessings that you've received. Um, but some of those blessings have stuck with you more than others. And there have been some of those blessings that you have gone to a great deal of trouble to remember and to make sure that you did remember. And that being the case, what was it about those, the words that were said or the spirit that you felt during that blessing that resonated with you? It was something that called to you. So I'll ask this question again. How could you receive a lesson in the pre-existence that would survive the veil? And I've thought a lot about this. Um, we've got another answer here. Maybe, we, maybe we've got somebody who can get give shed some light.
3: I'm happy to hear your answer. Um, mine kind of piggybacks on the last comment as far as things that resonate. Um, I think we have a few things that reach through the veil for us. We have been given scriptures and living prophets. We have those blessings you mentioned, patriarchal blessings, um, and I think that they are aids to remind us of those lessons that we learned previously and to maybe push us in a direction to where the Spirit can speak more of those truths to us and, and help us learn those things that we need to learn.
0: Wow, thank you. And I don't have the answer, and it goes in line with what you're saying, but and, and it goes in line with kind of what our... What the point of this lesson is, and what the point of Dallin H. chokes was, and that's this: the only lessons that are worth. Well, let me ask one more question before I before I get into that, and that is this: if you've read the scripture that says whatever intelligent, whatever level of intelligence you attain in this life, you will carry with you into the next life. But I know near-death experiences are not gospel, but from the near-death experiences that I've read, people meet up with Christ and immediately, be, or with with someone who is their spiritual guide in the next world, and they immediately get all their deepest questions answered as quickly as they can ask them. And they have no trouble remembering things, and they, they notice their mind is clearer than it ever was on earth. And I don't know whether all these things are true, but let's, let's think for a minute. I mean, the, some of these things have to be true, right? In order for God to be God, his brain has to be free of the mortal restrictions that we find our brains under. And so when we die, our, our thinking will be freed from all of those things. So what does it matter whether we learn calculus on Earth? Is that the level of intelligence that rises with us? And that is an, a little insight into the answer to this question, because, no, I don't think it does matter. People who do well in school, and I, I was one of these kids, and when I first read this, I think it was in Deacon's Quorum, I thought, oh, cool, because, you know, I'm, I'm attaining a greater level of intelligence. And so I thought, maybe that'll do me some good in the, in the world to come. And as I get older and I realize there are no smart and dumb people in the eternities. No one is smart and no one is dumb. Everyone is the same. We all can remember everything that we need to, and we all can learn something as fast as we want to. So what does intelligence mean? We only have the definition that we have in the Doctrine and Covenants, section 93, which is the glory of God, light and truth. And this chapter is a chapter where the, the only adjective that God uses to describe himself is intelligent. He says, I am the Lord thy God. I am more intelligent than they all. He's talking about first the stars in the sky, and he shows them all to Abraham. And then he shows him the spirits. So the only lessons worth learning are those that help us to change. And those lessons involve moral agency. Those lessons involve weakness and struggle. When we struggle with something, and, and we're beaten down by the circumstances of life, and we're left to despair, then we have to call upon God. And the key to this, as to so many things, is found in Ether 1227, which is, I give unto men weakness, that they may be humble. If you are willing to be humble in this life, you will learn more in 20 minutes than you can in an entire eight years of medical school that will do you good in the eternities. The whole reason that you've been given, the weaknesses you've been given, the entire reason from front to back is that you will be humble. If God gave you no weaknesses, and I don't know whether he gave the Savior any weaknesses, but the Savior was able to be humble with what he was given. And that's the only exception I can think of. Everyone else, we if we had no weaknesses, we would immediately swell with pride and take upon us all of the attitudes that Satan had. We would start to try to gain the admiration of other people and take away their choices because we have this deep-seated need to feel like we're better than other people. And therefore, God gave us weaknesses. He gave us the tendency to lift ourselves up in pride, and he gave us these weaknesses to learn. If we will humble ourselves and come unto him, those are the two conditions, then he'll make those weak things strong. So those are the lessons that are worth learning. It has nothing to do with what you might learn in school. Those are wonderful things. But what the the lessons, and I shouldn't say it has nothing to do with that, because you might go to school and learn a lot of facts. It doesn't have anything to do with the facts. You might learn how to work in school. You might learn how to look at a classmate who's in trouble and help. Those are the lessons that you'll carry with you as you go to the next life. The lessons that are eternal, are the lessons that change you. So God was watching us, and there was no way to fake it. There was no way to cram for the test. There was no way to bring in a crib sheet of notes. It had everything to do with who we were and what we were, and nothing at all to do with what we knew. Everybody knew everything they wanted to know. We had a version of the internet that was infinitely more perfect than the one we have now, which was we could all read each other's social media posts every day without without having to go online. We would just think about each other and we would immediately be in touch with each other. <clears throat> I don't know that for sure, but I'm, I'm guessing that there had to be some spiritual means of communication in the pre-existence where we could check in on each other. And we have these poor approximations. And as, and as technology gets better and better, we, we think that the world is better than at any time ever. But all we're doing is making poor approximations for how we once lived and how we will again live in the presence of God, which is that we were in perfect communication with each other and we could share all the knowledge we wanted to. The key difference being that we knew what truth was. We didn't have to use the scientific method to test a hypothesis. We could just have God tell us, and according to our faith, we would know whether it was true or not.
1: Go ahead. So maybe a, a little bit of a different take on this is, I mean, I tend to value knowledge a great deal. It's, it's one of the things I value most. And I think that someone could have all the love in the world or in the universe. They could have all the humility in the universe. But if they had no particle of knowledge, they would be useless to all beings. It's only when that is coupled with knowledge that you become useful. So I would say that um, rather than maybe completely de-emphasizing the role of knowledge, I mean, I think it's worth de-emphasizing compared to how we normally emphasize it. Because I do think the level of... uh, Efficiency associated with acquiring knowledge in the future will be enhanced beyond our present comprehension. But, uh, but their, their scissors, you know, knowledge is one half of the scissor, and uh, and love and, and perhaps humility are the other half, and, and they combined are uh, are what do the work together. But uh, even if it's not the case that we gain knowledge efficiently, the eternity is uh, that's a very long time and the slightest amount of misdirection or contamination, even with very slow but very long processes, brings about bad results. And so to to make our direction sure and to be free of contamination over the long run is really the most important question of all. And that way, whether the learning is extremely fast or extremely slow, in the end, it won't, won't really matter to, uh, to the end result. Thank you. And you're 100% right. Uh, I
0: did de-emphasize that maybe a little too much. I do think that knowledge, knowledge is obviously incredibly important here in our mortal existence. It's so important. And of course it will be important in the eternities. The difference is there will be no lack of it. So we don't often talk about how important it is to get air to all of the starving people in Africa. It's because they don't need air, they have air. And knowledge will be like air will be surrounded with it, I believe. So you're right, it will be very important and we'll have as much of it as we want. Go ahead.
3: So uh, we talked earlier about um, being gravitated to certain principles um, in this life, whether truths just resonate or come easily or more naturally and um, it makes me think about whether or not we're attracted to those because we're supposed to fulfill the measure of our creation. So there are certain principles that we will naturally find or weaknesses that we'll naturally have, families will be born into specifically so that we can accomplish the tasks that are needed um, for why we were even here on this earth. And again, just the whole topic of knowing that there's a life before we came and why we're here um, kind of brings it all full circle
1: me anyway so that yeah Wendy, can i ask you a question you might want to add something on there sure um can you talk about your service vacations i'm not sure what the right word was it how (laughs) how that kind of i I don't know how to say longed is the word that's coming to mind it just kind of stuck with you and how that goes along with what you said about hearing truth and light and going oh That's for me. Would you mind? Yeah. Um,
3: So, um, I'm going to pick up on a little something that you said earlier. We're only as good as the tools that we've been given. And um, in order to really be an effective instrument, you have to have tools and knowledge. And um, you do gravitate, at least I have, of um, being called, whether it's formally or in, I mean, I've had a lot of direction and given that part of why I'm here is to serve others. And there's certain blessings and certain things that are withheld deliberately until I find and seek those that I've made promises to before this life. So I've had experiences even as recent as Christmas Eve where... where uh, I'm put in situations to prepare me for something more or um, to get additional um, education to fulfill the measure of why I'm here and what the Lord needs me to do. Um, so, yeah, I, I'm taken aback a little bit by the question. I wasn't quite expecting it, but i um, always so humbled at the opportunities that come my way and humbled at the Lord's hand in my life when um, I'm presented with it and and then see that it's really just I'm a vessel and I'm no different than anyone. I mean, that might be a more obvious one with some of the things that I do, but we all individually have our service that we're supposed to do. And some of the most beautiful service moments I've had are actually nothing that's overseas, sometimes in the quiet moments, on the street somewhere that nobody needs or needs to know, or it's just God and I know. So, and that's how I think it should be, oftentimes.
0: Go
2: ahead. To me, one of the biggest lessons of Kolob is um, levels of responsibility and importance. So, so for instance, like one of the biggest symbols in the Old Testament is light, right? It's, there's spiritual light and there's physical light, and they're used continuously to kind of explain the same thing. So the idea is like, here on Earth, we can create light. I can make a fire. I can build a flashlight, we can build a hydroelectric dam and create electricity, but that's only possible because of the light of the sun that we revolve around. If the sun went out, then we have no ability to create light and life dis- dissipates and goes away. And the sun, you know, because we rotate around the sun, and the sun is symbolic of the sun of God, and it rotates around a bigger star, which isn't important whether or not it's an actual star we can find in a telescope as much as it is that's. It's just saying that Jesus revolves around a bigger star, which is God the Father. And so it kind of gives us like levels of, it's like, yeah, I can create a lot of light, but it's nothing compared to the sun. And in fact, if the sun went out, we'd go away. But if the earth disappeared, the sun would still be there. And so it's it like levels of importance and responsibilities. Like I have certain responsibilities, but my responsibilities are only within my orbit. And as we graduate, then we can get bigger and bigger orbits, but really, this existence is about this orbit and understanding this, and then we graduate bigger and bigger.
3: Thank you. I love that. Talking about orbits, like, universe isn't stupid, right? I mean, you think about the Star of Bethlehem, there's a quote on it that was recently, that I read over Christmas, like, it was in an orbit and set perfectly to be bright on the night that it needed to be, right? Set well well before in its orbit and its place. And like the star, and, and again, aligning to, to the scriptures that we've talked about today, we are in an orbit, and we are to shine and do certain things at the right time in the right way.
0: Yeah, I love it.
3: And I like to think, along with what they, uh, they both said, that in Abraham 3, it talks about the noble and great ones. And I don't know for a fact who it was, that um, who the Noble and Great Ones were, except for what it says in the scriptures. But I like to think that all of us can become, or were part of, or are, um, you know, have that, we have that in us to fulfill, measure our creation to be the Noble and Great Ones. And perhaps a bunch of us were there creating, helping to create the, the earth. Um, with with Heavenly Father and the Savior, but the the noble and great ones were truly that, and and I don't believe it was just a
1: few. You know, going off that comment, um, I very much believe, and I there are I don't have references, but I there have been a lot of other people who have had similar notions that we are joint creators with God, and the work of God is always done through delegation, and the reason for that is. The person to whom a task is delegated becomes something by performing that delegated task. And since the point is to become something, everything must be delegated if we want to maximize becoming. And so I think by the same token that if we are ever to live in a celestial kingdom, it will be because we built it with our own hands um, by with increasing light and knowledge. And as we get that, We perform some new task that makes the society of heaven that much closer to existing and the external environment, uh, based on knowledge, curing all diseases, um, learning how to make really awesome materials to build great buildings out of, uh, or for Kendra, um, amazing music, and all of that stuff. That's how we become. So I don't think it's going to be the case that God says, well done, thou good and faithful servant, here's the key to the gate. He'll say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Um,
0: here's a hammer and, a, and some plans for a harder building. That's, that's right. Exactly right. Yeah. Well, you're, you're trying to jump a week ahead. We're talking about the creation next week. But you're right. Yeah, we it does say. They went down and they said we'd take up these materials. And that's very scriptural. Yeah. It's not just an idea. I think that's absolutely right. right. Anyone else? Any other comments? Let's go now to the beginning of the chapter, Abraham chapter 3. The first thing that uh, Abraham says was that I looked into my Urim and Thummim, and you can read along, you can read ahead, whatever you want to do. I looked into my Urim and Thummim, and God showed me all of the stars, and he gives them the names of the stars and the sun, and he says, there's something above the earth, and where two facts exist, and he used the word facts to talk about timescales, where there are two facts exist, there will be another fact above them. And he, he likened the level of holiness or the, the closeness of a celestial body to Kolob. He likened that to its scale of time. The farther away it is from Kolob, which is the star nearest to the throne of God, as he says, then the closer it is to God's way of measuring time, which is to our—and I don't know that this is accurate. A lot of people do math based on this, and I think that's a mistaken assumption that the relation of our time to God's time is that one day equals a thousand years. I think that's meant to be a metaphor and not, in other words, you, if, if you start doing math based on that. You might come out a few thousand years on the wrong end. But the point is that we have no idea how quickly God sees something. And, and earlier in the, in Moses chapter one, God says, all things are present before me. Moses chapter one, verse six. And, We know from that that God lives outside of time. So to talk about one one day being a thousand years just means that God doesn't have problems with being patient enough to wait for events to take their course. And the the lifespan of a human being and even the lifespan of an entire planet is not something that he has a, a trouble seeing the end of, seeing the beginning of. And all the worlds that have existed and will exist, they all are equal to him. He doesn't think one is important because it's coming up, and one is less important because it's already passed away. To him, they're all happening right now, and he sees them all, and he remembers them all, and he's able to focus on them all. So God talks about all of his creation sprawled across the universe, and Abraham tries to look at him, but he's, overwhelmed. he's quickly overwhelmed by how many there are. And so he, he finds them innumerable. And then God starts talking about how they're differentiated. There's one celestial body that's above the earth. It's higher than that earth upon which thou standest. There's another that's higher than that until you come to Kolob. And a lot of people have wondered, what is this doing in the scriptures? How does it profit us? And uh, in the ancient Hebrew tradition, And this predates Abraham. There is a rhetorical device called parallelism where you just repeat something, you change something slightly. It seems simple once you talk about it, but we don't recognize it in the Bible and we think, why are they they speaking so weird? It's because they would emphasize something by saying it once and then saying it again with a slight difference, and that difference was the entire key. And I see a huge example of that here in this chapter. God tells Abraham how you tell the difference between the holiness of a celestial sphere. And then he immediately starts saying, and, Abraham, and God showed me the intelligences that were organized before the world was. And then he shows them how to, he shows Abraham how to compare them. And the, the means he uses is intelligence. And we, so I, I gave that preface on intelligence so that we wouldn't think that God cares about how smart we are. He doesn't. He cares how hard we work to become as educated as we can be, just like he cares how we develop all of our talents. But we aren't valuable to God for our intelligence unless you take intelligence in the sense that, that God means it here, which is light and truth. How much light are you capable of receiving? When you hear something that's true, are you willing to abide by it? And it's not how much can you know, but it's how capable are of you how capable are you of hearing the truth and then becoming something? Because we're going to undergo a change when we finish this life. It's going to be as profound as the change that we underwent to come here. And in order to do that, we have to, we have to make these lessons stick. We're going to be a different person later. The only way we can take them with us is if we actually change, not if we learn something that seems really cool or, we take really good notes. It's going to be whether we allow it to penetrate us and then act differently because we don't change instantly as people. We can we can hear something. We can hear all. We can think, oh, that's life changing. And then if we don't actually go out and implement it in our lives, it won't be longer than a few days or a week before we don't think it's that notable anymore. Or we could have it be something that really does change our lives because we act differently from then on. So that's what God means when He says one is more intelligent than the other, is that these are the beings that are more capable of undergoing change when they hear truth. They have light and they have truth. So you have truth and that truth stays with you because you follow the light that's within it. That's what intelligence is. And then God says, I am more intelligent than they all. Now, what is the lesson God's trying to teach us? Uh, Let's look in verse 18. Now, as we are... We are gnats on the earth when we look at the stars. Our, we are mayflies. Our lives flare briefly and then are extinguished. And stars' lifespan is measured in the billions of years. But there's something that God says here about spirits that he doesn't say about the stars. He talks about all these stars and how they're scattered across the sky. And these are these are the the expanse and the extent of my creations are these wonderful stars, and then we presume planets around them and people living on those planets, and all of the particles of all of those creations. God loves all of his inanimate creations as well. But he doesn't say that the stars are eternal. And if you read in verse 18, at the end of the verse, he says, these spirits are no long or eternal. So God made a little change. There's the parallelism. He talks about all of the stars of the sky, and then he talks about people, and he says, "Until you come into the throne of God, and I am more intelligent than they all. In other words, I'm more capable of changing when I hear light and truth, or at least I am more capable of incorporating." We don't talk about God as being a changeable being, but I'm more capable of incorporating truth than anyone else. And another way of saying that would be to say I have more light than anyone else. But he's the thing the change that God makes, the change in the parallelism is that spirits are eternal. So at the same time he's showing Abraham here are all my creations and then he's telling Abraham and you are greater than any of them. When Moses saw the extent of God's creations, the first thing he said when he came out of it was, "For this cause I know that man is nothing." So he saw the extent of God's creations and uh, those of you who haven't heard the first episode, listen to that. We talk extensively about this. God is nothing, or man is nothing in his present state. Man can only see the present, but God sees man from outside of time. And in that sense, he is now communicating this in the, in the first book of Moses. We have one, one perspective, which is that man is nothing. And now we see why man is not nothing. It's because, it's because man is eternal. So God is communicating a powerful truth. Here is why you are worthwhile, because you are going to last forever. Are you willing to take upon you the, the duty and the, the obligation, the sacred charge, to incorporate the truth according to the light you receive? That's the lesson from this chapter. If you ever wonder, and this is for all you gospel doctrine teachers out there, if you ever wonder what, what's your central message in the lesson that you're looking at, I guarantee you with every single lesson that's in our manual and and, so, and it, within every chapter of Scripture, unless it's uh, in Numbers where they're talking about how many Japhethites there are, every single chapter of Scripture will contain a way f- for you to understand something about the Savior. And that includes the Old Testament. And I, and I again, I qualify that not quite every single chapter, almost every chapter will contain a lesson about Christ. If it doesn't, you're not reading it right. You haven't spent enough time praying and studying and thinking about it. And that is how you love God with your mind. If you're willing to do that, you will learn about the Savior. That is why it's Scripture, by the way. And in this chapter, the lesson one of the lessons is we draw closer to Christ by paying attention to the fact that he got where he is by being the greatest in light and truth. So when we see things that are true, we can't ignore them, we can rely on our own strength, we can assume that our intelligence will be enough, that our earthly intelligence will be enough, or we can humble ourselves. We can take the initiative to have these weaknesses perform the function they were designed to do, to which we agreed to, and which we were joyous about. We rejoiced over the function these weaknesses would create, which is to change us, to create in us a different person, because we saw not just the 70, 80, 90-year stretch, 100-year stretch, my mom's in the room, you're going to live to 100, mom, that we're going to live on this earth, but we saw all the eternities stretched before us. We saw that we, that we really are mayflies on the earth, but so what? We have this infinite existence, more than the stars themselves, and we can collect more light than the stars themselves if we will allow that light to stay within us that's the function of truth it captures light and so god was saying to all of the people that would read abraham's message he was saying you are the star you are the you are greater than the stars you are the brightest lights that shine man is not nothing in my view but satan will try to convince you that he is man as you are man kind as you are today. You are nothing. And in your own strength, you can do nothing. But in my strength and with my light, you will become as great as I am. And this is my message for all of you. I pray that you will have the Spirit to be with you as you teach and as you study these scriptures. And I leave this with you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.